Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello and welcome to The Sidebar, presented by True Crime Daily, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at JoshuaRitterESQ or at JoshuaRitter.com. We are recording this on Friday, August 25th, 2023. And in this week's episode, we have husbands behaving badly with three cases of husbands accused of murdering their wives. First, a dentist is sentenced to life in prison for the murder of his wife while the couple was on a big game hunting trip in Africa. Also, an Orange County Superior Court judge pleads not guilty to shooting his wife after allegedly texting a confession to his co-workers. But first, breaking news as the widower, Thomas Randolph, is found guilty on all counts and is now convicted for a second time of murdering his sixth wife and the hitman he allegedly hired to kill her. Today we are joined by Michael Korobonix, a federal criminal defense attorney and legal analyst you can catch on the Law and Crime Network and many other media outlets. Michael, welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be here today. We've been looking forward to this. We enjoyed speaking with you so much last time. I know that you follow these cases closely and you also have a federal experience, which we're going to ask about a little bit. But before we jump in, tell us a little bit about your current practice. Well, my criminal practice, I'm a solo practitioner. Um, I just mainly concentrate on criminal defense work. I do a lot of federal work. I also do state work. I'm a former prosecutor, as were you. I was in the other side, though, I'm here in Jersey. I was in Hudson County in Jersey City. So it gave me a lot of good experience, and uh, I enjoy doing what I do. Fantastic. Um, well, I enjoy hearing your thoughts on these cases. I always enjoy when I see you on the Law and Crime Network or otherwhere, uh, other places, pardon me. Uh, so let's jump right in to Las Vegas, Nevada, where after a mere five hours, a jury has returned a guilty verdict on all counts facing Thomas Randolph and his retrial for the murder of his sixth wife, Sharon, and a hitman he had allegedly hired to kill his wife. Randolph, dubbed the widower after four of his six wives died under mysterious circumstances, faced two counts of murder and a conspiracy charge after the 2008 deaths of his wife and the couple's occasional handyman, Michael Miller, who prosecutors allege Randolph conspired with to execute 
a hit on Sharon. In his defense, Randolph maintained that his wife was killed by a masked intruder whom he then killed, only later realizing that the intruder was Miller. A jury previously convicted Randolph of the murders in 2017, sentencing him to death. However, that conviction was overturned by the Nevada Supreme Court due to over-reliance on prior bad acts evidence introduced by the prosecution. This time around, jurors arrived at the same conclusion. However, prosecutors are not seeking the death penalty due to Randolph's age. He is 68 years old. His sentencing is scheduled scheduled, pardon me, for October 12, 2023. All right, Michael, jump in. I know you followed this case closely. What are your reactions to these verdicts? Are you surprised at all? No, I'm not. I actually was a little surprised at the reversal of his previous conviction because prior bad acts are not unusual evidence in a case when basically they fit like a glove. You wonder how a I haven't looked at the appellate part, and the appellate's always a much different analysis because it's so detail-oriented in putting it with the law as opposed to jurors just listening to the story and finding out whether or not it's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. However, with that, though, he got his retrial, and I doubt he's going to go very far on any kind of appeal in this case because it was so consolidated. Sometimes when it's so consolidated, the evidence is so strong and so convincing to a jury that it only took him a couple hours to convict on a murder. I don't care who a juror is. They know what's going on with a murder case. And I think that even though they take a vow to not have any sort of emotions come into a case or thing of that nature, with a murder case, you really, they look at it very closely. And here there was just so much overwhelming evidence circumstantially as well as inconsistencies of his statement that I think that was his big problem in the defense. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Five five hours, you know, it's not nothing, but it is a short enough amount of time for a case of this kind of complexity that you have to believe that they were fairly convinced by the time they even got back to the deliberation room. Um, you know, it's funny on that prior bad acts evidence um, I tend to see the prosecution relying, and I'm not spe- specifically talking about this case, but in 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 my experience, relying too heavily on that. And that sounds like what they may have done in that that prior trial is it's not that the evidence itself was inadmissible uh, as a rule, but that they felt that they just leaned on it too heavily, and it became a trial about the prior trial rather than about the trial that they were actually sitting for. At least that's how the uh, appellate court viewed it because, correct me if I'm wrong, getting a retrial is a pretty rare circumstance. Usually those appellate courts are inclined to say, uh, you know, harmless error or something like that. You agree? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you make a great point there is when you have good evidence that supports your main case, use it in that so in that sequence, in that kind of circumstance. But if you're relying too much on things that aren't the main part of your case, it does make it look like the main part of your case's evidence is not that strong. And you're relying on the supporting evidence as opposed to using the supporting evidence to rely on the direct evidence in the case before the jury. Yeah, yeah. Um, talk to us a little bit about 
retrials uh, in your experience or just kind of generally? Because I've always felt like they favor the prosecution because the defense um, has kind of gone through all of their tricks. They Whatever opportunity they had to kind of ca- catch some witnesses off guard or surprise witnesses, they called themselves, they've already missed all those opportunities on the first trial and the prosecution kind of can correct those errors the second time around. But this trial seemed a little bit different because the prosecution really had much of their case taken from them because of how much they relied on that prior bad acts evidence and they had to pivot their theory and rely more heavily on the statements that he had made to police. Obviously, they were successful. I'm not asking you to give a give your opinion on whether or not you felt that they were successful but um tell us about that your just your general idea on the is it is it generally in favor of the defense a second or pro- prosecution a second time around and how how is pivoting difficult for them well see josh this is why i like doing your show because you have experience you're not just talking about it you've been there and and what you're making is a great point is it's never really, to my opinion, to our as defense attorneys benefit on a retrial, because basically the obligation and the burden of proof is on the state or the government. So we don't have to disclose our cross-examination or things of that nature before we deal with each witness. When you get a retrial, you've basically told the government, here's where your case is weak. Here's where we think we're going to be very successful and you throw the punches. But now when they have a retrial, they know what punches are coming before you throw them and they can tighten it up and they can substantiate evidence that they thought was weak. Um, In this case, quite frankly, I think the appellate division by making them retry it actually strengthened their case because they said, deal with the present. Don't deal with the past. Deal with the present. That's what's going to help get this case. Don't rely upon emotion of what may have happened have the jury there is quite frankly as the government live up to your obligation to present proofs relevant to this case not other cases to prove beyond a reasonable doubt and i think that's important and i think that was a good move by the appellate division and it strengthened this conviction absolutely yeah the ex- excellent point they may have done them a favor keep it simple stupid right i mean just do, don't get caught up in all of this other nonsense concentrate on the case at hand it was not a um not a weak case obviously with the verdict that we have here uh but one question always we we consider uh asking this question this case did rely from the per- defense perspective very heavily on those statements that he made to police. He, he There were this recorded video statement where he walked through how everything took place and the prosecution really chopped that apart. Do you think in addressing that, it might have been now in retrospect in his best interest to take the stand to try to explain some of that? I Theoretically, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but in reality and practicality, based upon the way he was so inconsistent with the things he said. And quite frankly, I guess I'm being one of those old guys. I'm not a big cell phone fan. And as cell phones, I don't think people realize, especially criminal defendants don't realize, cell phones don't help you. And my understanding here is 
they had a lot of cell phone records, which are confidential or things of that nature, of him going back and forth with the man he killed, who was his friend. So I think they, by putting him on the stand, you really took a big risk, as we say in court, of opening the door, which when we say opening the door allows the government, because you brought up a subject, to actually take evidence that may not have been admissible and now substantiate and, and strengthen their stance that he's lying, he's not telling the truth, and here's how we can show. So I, I think while in theory, it's always good to speak about your client taking the stand, in practicality, it's very difficult, especially someone who, had, who was suspected of killing his previous wives. Once he opened his mouth on that stand, all the things on the appeal might have been able to come back in. Yeah. And that's yeah. where I think they ran a risk. No, ex excellent point. As you were speaking, I'm thinking you're absolutely right. If he's up there and he even says something along the lines of, you know, they ask him, why couldn't you remember? Why did you misspeak in this statement? And he goes, well, I was in such shock after finding my wife dead. I've never experienced anything like that. Oh, really? Well, let's talk <laughs> about the four other wives that have ended up dead that you've been married to. You know, it just you could see any opportunity like that. It would be a real tight wire act for him to to testify and explain those things and not open up the door. Excellent, excellent point. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's move now to Denver, Colorado, where a successful dentist who murdered his wife on a hunting trip in Zambia has been sentenced to life in prison following convictions for murder and fraud. Lawrence Rudolph shot his wife, Bianca, in a hunting lodge before trying to frame her murder as an accident. Following Bianca's death, Rudolph filed nearly $5 million in fraudulent insurance claims upon his return to the States. Rudolph was eventually arrested and later tried by federal prosecutors in Denver, where the insurance companies were based. Prosecutors argued the murder was in part motivated by Rudolph's desire to begin a new life with his mistress. In addition to his life sentence, Rudolph will be required to repay the insurance companies a $2 million fine. All right, this is the uh, the part I'm hoping you can shed a little light on, Michael. If in the federal world here, it's really a jurisdictional question. This murder took place in Africa, another country across the world. Why are they able to prosecute that case here in the States? Well, we have a, in the federal courts, there is a foreign murder of United States nationals. So, that's we have actually law written in the federal government that says if there is a United States national with another national anywhere in a foreign country, we maintain jurisdiction if they so choose. So that's how it came over. We actually have a statute that allows it because in Africa, where this occurred, they just wrote it off from what I understood it said it was an accident. Uh, the, the federal government came in and it appears did a much larger investigation and were able to put the investigation together probably a lot easier and better because of the fact 
that they were able to go after the illegal activities with the insurance fraud and things of that nature that were gone going here. So when they were looking at that, it opened up, I think, the investigation into the murder and saying, well, we need to take a closer look at this. And the laws we have in the United States allows us to have jurisdiction on them. Something something important to keep in mind if you're deciding, uh, uh, thinking about killing anybody out of the country, that they can still, they can still, the long arm of the law can still reach out and grab you. Um, but talk to us about, I, I, I mean, I've, I've handled cases where witnesses may have uh, lived in other states or may, you know, events may have occurred in other states, even though the crime itself occurred in my home state. But now you're talking about the crime itself and nearly all the witnesses involved are in another country. What difficulties do you think that presents for the prosecution? Obviously, they were able to surmount those, but still. Well, it's difficult for the prosecution. Quite frankly, it's even more difficult for the defense attorneys because the the federal prosecutors, I mean, that is why a lot of time the feds will take over a case for the state because they just quite frankly have much more resources and and more extensive resources in doing their investigations as opposed to a county police department or a state police department, things of that nature. And they also have better funds to go do the travel and all, all that kind of thing. Now, as a defense attorney, either you're getting paid by your client who has to go into their pockets and may not be able to pay for investigations and things of that nature to fly your investigator over because as attorneys, we can't and we can't interview clients by ourselves because that would make us a potential witness in the case. So you have to have an investigator. With you. So it's very difficult for both sides, but even more so because what if they needed to go interview some witnesses in Africa? That's not an easy task for the defense to do. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because that was one of my questions is, do you think that those difficulties themselves um, create an appellate issue? In other words, can he say or make some sort of argument, I've been denied due process to some extent because you're, you're asking me to, you know, essentially fly across the world to try to cobble together a defense on a case that was rejected, as you pointed out, by the home country. And now I'm trying to piece together my defense, you know, this amount of time later and in another country. And it's just simply too much for me to to be able to the too much of an obstacle for me to get past. Whereas you, the government, have unlimited resources. Anything there, you think? I, I, I do think from a practical sense that it's a great point and I understand it. But from a legal perspective, I would assume an appellate court would say, hey, you should have thought of that before you went to Zimbabwe. <laughs> and we have a law that says we can do this. Now, granted, you know, a lot of people don't realize, too, is a defendant, if they're not financially able to defend themselves, can always apply to the court, whether it's a federal court or state court, to have some sort of support financially or in order to do a valid defense as long as they can show the court they can't afford it. This dentist, it appears, would have a very rough argument because it appeared he could afford it before he even got involved in this. He was involved, if I understand it correctly, he had a very big dental 
company, not just he wasn't a dental doctor. He also had a company supporting it. So I, I, I don't know where it would go in this case, but that's always a difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting case. Just just from the logistics standpoint of it. Um, anyhow, it's one of the first I heard like this. It's one of the first I heard where something happened in a federal. Yeah. Me, you know, me other country. Totally. Yeah, me, me too, especially the idea that the home country didn't treat it as a crime. Usually, usually the, the times that you've seen it is a crime may have been committed in another country and that country's investigating and is allowing it to be turned over to the, the United States. But here they were like, hey, we this looked like an accident to us. And the U.S. government took it upon themselves to take another look at after, like you said, there was a lot of insurance uh, money changing hands. And I imagine that's what kind of got everybody to take a real close look at all of this. Let's now turn to our final uh, husband on wife murder of today in Los Angeles, California, where Orange County Superior Court Judge Jeffrey Ferguson pleaded not guilty to murder after allegedly shooting his wife, Cheryl Ferguson, in an argument. The couple reportedly began bickering at a restaurant where Ferguson made a hand gesture indicative of pointing a gun at her. The argument continued into Ferguson's Anaheim Hills home where Cheryl said something to the effect of, why don't you point a real gun at me? Prosecutors allege that that statement prompted Ferguson to remove a 40 caliber Glock pistol from his ankle holster and shoot Cheryl in the chest. Following the shooting, Ferguson allegedly texted his law clerk and bailiff, quote, I just lost it. I just shot my wife. I won't be in tomorrow. I will be in custody. I'm so sorry. Ferguson's adult son, who was in the home at the time of the shooting, called 911 and Ferguson was taken into custody shortly thereafter. After Ferguson posted $1 million bond, he was required to surrender his passport and prohibited from consuming alcohol or possessing firearms. Because of Ferguson's close connections to the criminal bar in Orange County, serving uh, both as a DA and as a judge, the case has been removed to Los Angeles County for prosecution. All right, I'm gonna. I, I I know you're not a local here, so I'm gonna help you out a little bit with this question. But my my question is the moving of it from from Orange County to L.A. County. Does that really change anything? And the and the the reason I ask this is that historically, just to give you some background, you probably know this already. Orange County is seen as a is a far more politically conservative area in California than L.A. County. Do you think? That's going to change anything about the dynamics of the case, just when we're talking about jury pool. I, I, I don't think so, because it doesn't seem to be a politically motivated sort of case. Uh, I, I think one of the reasons they're moving it is more so because of the fact he was a judge there. And just having a judge walk in as a defendant now in a county where all his comrades or you know professional friends here are the judges I, I i think that makes a little bit of an uncomfortable difficult sort of area that could cut both ways for the defense or the prosecution so i think moving it out is is just a better way to just get any sort of appearance of favoritism because he was an employee there to uh to just put it on the side but i, I don't think it'll make that much of a difference because 
this is such a, you know, I, it's almost unbelievable. We're talking about three husband and wife murders today. And it's like all over the place here. And it's it's just a very unusual situation. But I think once we're into murders, especially of family members, politics and things should go to the side. I don't see how they could be politically motivated. I I think I agree with you. I think it it's much more about the appearance of it. I, I don't know if, if they, I think he probably would have uh, received a very fair trial and fair jurors and everything else had it remained in Orange County, but I think it just didn't pass the sniff factor for everyone and they thought it's just best for optics to move it to LA County. That being said though, they are still going to have Orange County DAs prosecute the case here in LA County. If if we're going, what are your thoughts on that? If we're if we're removing it out of the county because of his connections, well, he used to work for the DA's office there in, in Orange County. Should they also get other prosecutors involved? What do you think? I don't. I don't really believe so. I think it'd be different if he was still a, a DA a DA there. Um, I mean, listen, I have judges I appear in front of who were prosecutors when I was in the prosecutor's office. And, I don't think they show me much favoritism at times, but <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a natural kind of flow to become. Most judges have trial experience or should have them. Um, and most most of us get our trial experience from either being, you know, starting out in the prosecutor's office or the public defender's office where you are constantly trying cases. You're not trying them once in a while. You have an experience that builds you to move up to the next step. And I think that's sort of something that needs to be taken in consideration. So I don't think that the prosecutor's office would be in a conflict since he's been out of it for so many years while he was a judge. Interesting. Well, we'll we'll see. I, I, I think I agree with you. I think everyone can behave like adults in all of this. The fact that he's a judge, I don't think is going to dramatically affect how everyone behaves. Uh, last point on this. Um, apparently... After his son called 911, he also called 911 and was asked by the operator if he had shot his wife. And he made the statement, something to the effect of, I don't want to comment on that right now. So he's obviously cognizant of the idea that statements are important things. Statements from a defendant soon after a a shooting takes place. But then he goes about texting his clerk to say, and I'm going to read this quote again because I, I, I want to kind of go through it. It's, I just lost it. I just shot my wife. I won't be in tomorrow. I will be in custody. I'm so sorry. And I imagine a lot of the case is going to focus on that as being an omission by the prosecution. My question, though, to you is put on your defense attorney hat here. And is that truly an admission of guilt? Or is he more admitting that a shooting took place? but not that it was an indefensible shooting, if you can follow where I'm going with this. What are your thoughts? Well, I think, you know, as defense attorneys, we have to work with what we have. We don't create what what's coming. We work with what we have. Once again, though, it goes back to what I said earlier, is I just don't understand why people find the need to use their cell phone so much when <laughs> all they're doing is making evidence. I mean, this is basically... You almost think the government could stand up and just show the text to the jury and say, I got nothing more to say and sit down. Um, But I think the defense is going to have to do what you say is take that big wall that the government's going to use as a text and see what bricks they could pull out to 
weaken that wall and keep it from being strong enough to make proof beyond a reasonable doubt and incarcerate him. I, I do think that while he did admit to a shooting, he did say, I lost it. So maybe that'll help for some sort of mental evaluation as to whether or not he had the intent. But then again, you have recklessness here. But I, I think that they're going to have to figure out how to work with it. And you made the, the best point of how to work with it is that he's not showing intent, that there may be a mental breakdown here. This was an accident. And if he did, as a defense attorney, wouldn't we argue if he did murder her, why would he be informing his staff of what was going on if right thereafter he knows he's a judge. He knows about his Fifth Amendment. right? That, I think, yeah. would be a strong argument. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just I'm just trying to think of how they would deal with this. And that's where I was going is you're right. It 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 I, I think if you're the, his defense in opening statements, you you say my client shot his wife. That's undisputed. Now let's talk about why it happened and whether that defense is some sort of temporary insanity or some sort of self-defense or whatever it is. Embracing the idea that the shooting took place covers what's in that text, but I think there is at least some argument or wiggle room to be made to say that that doesn't make it first degree murder. Um, which is really what he's he's going to be facing here. So I don't know. I'm not saying it's a winning argument. I'm just saying that, you know, initially sometimes we look at those things and you might think it's a slam dunk, but a clever uh, defense attorney can maybe maybe cause a little bit of doubt uh, out of that text message. What do you think? Absolutely. I mean, that's the base. You got to see what develops around it and how it develops. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of focus on that text message to be able to use it as a defense because it's coming at you either way. So you bet yeah. the defense needs to really work on it. And I, I think they're going to have to really look into psychological evaluations for this person, this judge, to see if they have a defense they could put forth that would say he couldn't form the intent because he had a psychological breakdown. Yeah, yeah. Well, that case just got started. He was just arraigned. He's out on bail. So I imagine that will drag out for a while. We will continue to watch it. But in the meantime, that is our show, the Husband's Murdering Wives show. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for coming on this week. Where can people find out more about you? Well, uh, they can check me out on Instagram at Corbanics Law uh, and show up in a courtroom. I'm usually in those. That's the best place to find me. So but I appreciate being on your show and having the opportunity to discuss and learn from you. Thank you. Uh, we, we always appreciate you and we appreciate you coming back. I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ or at joshuaritter.com. You can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar.